Wrapped in my heavy blanket, I walked with my mother to the carriage that was soon to take us to the iron horse. I was happy. I met my playmates who were wearing their best thick blankets. We showed one another our new beaded moccasins and the width of the belts that girded our new dresses. Soon, we were being drawn rapidly away by the white man's horses. When I saw the lonely figure of my mother vanish in the distance, a sense of regret settled heavily upon me. I suddenly felt weak, as if I might fall limp to the ground. I was in the hands of strangers whom my mother did not fully trust. I no longer felt free to be myself or to voice my own feelings. The tears trickled down my cheeks and I buried my face in the folds of my blanket. Now the first step, parting me from my mother, was taken and all my belated tears availed nothing. Zidkala Shah or Redbird Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochede. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. Over the course of my research on women homesteaders, I came across several stories of the various interactions that indigenous people had with non-Native Americans. Last time, we heard a few white women's observations of Native people. We also learned about Sacagawea and her service to Lewis and Clark's Discovery Corps. Today, we'll see Native and non-Native people interact more closely, sometimes intimately, and often violently. Because of those violent encounters, you may want to pre-listen before sharing the episode with younger listeners. One thing that brought Native and non-Native people together was trade. Lewis and Clark conducted their Western expedition in 1806. In 1809, William Clark founded the Missouri Fur Company with four other men. More beaver fur trappers explored the area in the ensuing decades. One of these fur trappers was James Beckworth. He was born into slavery to a mulatto mother and white father, Sir Jennings Beckworth. The senior Beckworth had taken his son to the Louisiana Territory and manumitted him there. James Beckworth lived among the Crow Indians for six years and married a series of Indian wives before returning to white settlements. After gold was discovered in California, James Beckworth introduced westward travelers to the lowest mountain pass in the Sierra Nevada range, Beckworth Pass, which connects Reno, Nevada, and Portola, California, is named after him. From 1825 to 1840, annual rendezvous were held at various locations throughout the plains. These trading fairs were attended by Native and non-Native fur trappers and their families. They drew tourists from as far away as Europe. American miner, trapper, and entrepreneur William Henry Ashley founded the yearly gathering, and Beckworth describes one in his autobiography. General Ashley and Mr. Sublet came in, accompanied with 300 pack mules, well laden with goods and all things necessary for the mountaineers and the Indian trade. It may well be supposed that the arrival of such a vast amount of luxuries from the East did not pass off without a general celebration. Mirth, 
songs, dancing, shouting, trading, running, jumping, singing, racing, target shooting, yarns, frolic. With all sorts of extravagances that white men or Indians could invent, were freely indulged in. The unpacking of the medicine water contributed not a little to the heightening of our festivities. When the rendezvous ended, heavy-laden teamsters transported the furs to the Pacific Northwest for British companies or to Missouri River ports for American companies. In 1833, fur traders Serrin St. Rain, William Bent, and his brother Charles established a trading depot along the Santa Fe Trail. It was next to the Arkansas River in what is now Colorado. The depot was used by mountain men, settlers, teamsters, and Plains Indians to trade. They could get blankets from Mexico, sheep from New Mexico, buffalo robes from the Plains, and pelts from the Rockies. Manufactured goods were also sold there. The depot eventually became Fort Bent. William Bent married a Cheyenne woman named Miss Danta, or Owl Woman. She was the daughter of the most powerful man of the Southern Cheyenne, White Thunder. Owl Woman and Bent were both about 25 when they wed in a traditional Cheyenne ceremony. After visiting Bent's fort in 1845, Lieutenant James Abert of the U.S. Topographical Engineers wrote of Mistanta that she was, quote, a remarkably handsome woman, end quote, and said her, quote, wavy hair, unlike the Indians generally, was fine and of silken softness, end quote. But Owl Woman was known for more than her physical appearance. She served as an interpreter, taught her husband Southern Cheyenne customs, and mediated between Native Americans and the white soldiers and traders. Bent became seriously ill in 1845, likely from diphtheria. An Owl Woman nursed him back to health. Using a hollow quill, she blew broth into her husband's extremely swollen throat. She then called for the medicine man, One Eye, who used strong threads made of sinews and sharp sand burrs covered in marrow fat to pull an infected mass from Bent's throat. The treatment restored Bent's ability to swallow and to speak. The couple had four children. Their English names were Mary, Robert, George, and Julia. Their Cheyenne names, respectively, were Ho Ka, Octavi We His, Ho Mai Ike, and Um Ah. George, about whom we'll hear more later, was sent to Missouri for school and was in Westport when the Civil War started. He enlisted in the Confederate Army and was eventually captured as a prisoner of war. His family connections helped secure his release. Early in the 1840s, a trickle of Oregon-bound emigrants began following old native and trapper's routes to the Continental Divide, down to the Green River, over another divide to the Bear River, and on to the Northwest. This would be the Oregon Trail. Former trappers Jim Bridger and Louis Vasquez established a trading post along the trail, Fort Bridger, in what is now Southwest Wyoming. Bridger and many other trappers took Shoshone wives and started families near the post. The fort would grow into a focal point of the Shoshone community, and many Eastern Shoshone spent several months of the year there. Over the next decade, more posts were established along the trail. Most of them were run by French-speaking men with native wives, 
most of them being Lakota Sioux or Shoshone. Some background on the name Sioux. It comes from a word that means little snakes, a derogatory nickname given to them by their enemies, the Ojibwe. It refers to the Dakota, Lakota, and Nakota, who were the dominant tribes in Minnesota in the 17th century. Another factor that brought indigenous people and Euro-Americans together was religion. The first women of European descent to cross the Rocky Mountains were Protestant missionaries. Eliza Hart Spaulding and Narcissa Prentice Whitman traveled with their husbands to what is now Washington State to evangelize the Cayuse people. Narcissa, born Prentice, was a product of the Second Great Awakening, a religious movement of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Narcissa read about and was inspired by the life of Harriet Boardman, a missionary to the South Asian nation of India. At the age of 16, she decided she wanted to become a missionary. She later wrote in her application letter, quote, I frequently desire to go to the heathen, but only half-heartedly, and it was not till the first Monday of January, 1824, that I felt to consecrate myself without reserve to the missionary work waiting the leadings of Providence concerning me, end quote. The American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions rejected her initial application because she was single. They also had concerns about Dr. Marcus Whitman, a single man who wanted to serve as well. The board's view was that missionaries should be married so they could properly model Christian family to the heathen. Her marriage, without courtship or romance, to Dr. Marcus Whitman in February 1836 gained them both the board's acceptance. The couple headed west with the also newlywed Henry and Eliza Spaulding. Incidentally, Narcissa had once actually rejected Henry Spaulding's marriage proposal. The quartet attended the 1836 rendezvous, and Narcissa was amazed by the gathering. She wrote about the experience in a letter to her in-laws. Quote, I was met by a company of Native women, one after the other, shaking hands and saluting me with a most hearty kiss. This was unexpected and affected me very much. End quote. She also writes, June 26, 1836. The next day in the morning, we met a large party of Pawnees going to the fort to receive their annuities. They seemed to be very much surprised and pleased to see white females. Many of them had never seen any before. They are a noble Indian, large athletic forms, dignified countenances, bespeaking an immortal existence within. They arrived at Fort Walla Walla, an outpost of the Hudson Bay Company, in September of 1836. After a brief visit to Fort Vancouver, they returned to Walla Walla and began building their mission. In March 1837, Narcissa Whitman gave birth to the first white child born in Oregon country, Alice Clarissa Whitman. The Cayuse delighted in the new life. Narcissa writes, quote, the little stranger is visited daily by the chiefs and principal men in camp, and the women throng the house continually, waiting an opportunity to see her, end quote. Her letter to her family also says, quote, Philo Kaiki, a kind, friendly Indian, called to see her the next day after she was born. She said she was a Cayuse, Tami, or Cayuse girl, 
because she was born on Cayuse Waitis, or Cayuse land. End quote. She adds, quote, The whole tribe are highly pleased because we allow her to be called a Cayuse girl. End quote. Narcissa Whitman taught lessons in scripture as well as housekeeping American style. The Cayuse had been exposed to Christianity by the Hudson Bay traders, and they were receptive to learning more, but not to the rejection of their indigenous beliefs and way of life. The Whitmans expected them to abandon seasonal hunting, fishing, and gathering in exchange for more civilized farming. Narcissa worried about little Alice, who was starting to imitate Cayuse ways and speak with them. She also struggled to connect, and her husband's medical and mission business responsibilities took him away for weeks at a time. Then tragedy struck. One Saturday afternoon in 1839, little Alice announced that she was going to get some water. Narcissa thought nothing of it, and it didn't occur to her that her little girl, who had been so terrified of the river, would go down there to fill her water cup. By the time they realized where Alice was, it was too late. She had drowned. The loss of her daughter made life on the mission even more unbearable for Narcissa. She chafed at the lack of privacy. There were always people in the house. And visitors to the mission wrote that Narcissa was short-tempered and stayed in her room for long periods. She writes, May 1840. As a specimen, I will relate a circumstance that occurred this spring. When the people began to return from their winter quarters, we told them it would be good for them to build a large house, which they often do by putting several lodges together, where it would be convenient for all to attend worship and not meet in the open air. They said they would not do it, but would worship in our house and asked us if there were not houses in heaven to worship in. We told them our house was to live in, and we could not have them worship there, for they would make it so dirty and fill it so full of fleas that we could not live in it. We said to them further that they did not help us build it, and that people in other places build their houses of worship and did not let one man do it all alone, and urged them to join together by and by and build one for themselves of adobe. But it was of no avail to them. They murmured still and said we must pay them for their land we lived on. Something of this kind is occurring almost all the time when certain individuals are here, such as complaining because we do not feed them more, or that we will not let them run all over the house, etc., etc. They are an exceedingly proud, haughty, and insolent people, and keep us constantly upon the stretch after patience and forbearance. We feed them far more than any of our associates do their people, yet they will not be satisfied. Notwithstanding all this, there are many redeeming qualities in them, else we should have been discouraged long ago. We are more and more encouraged the longer we stay among them. A measles epidemic in 1847 made relations even worse. The white Americans had greater immunity to the disease, but half of the Cayuse died. They suspected that Dr. Whitman was curing only the white people and intentionally letting the Indian children die. Finally, on November 29th, Chief Tilu Kaikt attacked the mission, killing the Whitmans, two orphan children they'd taken in after their parents died on the Oregon Trail, and seven others. 
Within weeks, a unit of volunteers called the Oregon Rifles was raised. The U.S. Army also came in. Tilu Kaikt and four other tribe members were tried, convicted, and hanged for the Whitman Massacre. Americans also went west for gold. Its discovery in California in 1848 set a rush of thousands of wagon trails rolling through Indian lands. The 1851 Treaty of Fort Laramie compensated multiple Plains tribes for the damage that the volume of travelers had done to the land. In exchange for annual payments, the Lakota, Cheyenne, Arapaho, Crow, Hidatsa, Mandan, Arikara, and Assiniboine tribes agreed to mostly live and hunt on designated areas of the Northern Plains, and they would allow whites to pass through freely. Between 1851 and 1892, 134 California tribes were forced to sign 18 treaties relinquishing their sovereign rights in exchange for reservations. That time was also characterized by raids and battles throughout the Great Plains and Great Basin. Some of the events have names you've likely heard, like Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee. I'm going to talk about the Sand Creek Massacre, the Bear River Massacre, and the Dakota War, also known as the Sioux Uprising. In August of 1862, Many Dakota families in what is now southwestern Minnesota were facing starvation. Cutworms had destroyed the previous year's crop, and the next harvest was weeks away. They had already ceded 21 million acres of land for $1.6 million in the Minnesota treaties. With much of their hunting ground gone, they were forced to depend on Indian agency traders for food. Commissioner George Day had written the following to President Lincoln in January. I have discovered numerous violations of law and many frauds committed by past agents and a superintendent. I think I can establish frauds to the amount from twenty to $100,000 and satisfy any reasonable intelligent man that the Indians whom I have visited in this state and Wisconsin have been defrauded of more than $100,000 in or during the four years past. He adds, the whole system is defective and must be revised, or your red children, as they call themselves, will continue to be wronged and outraged, and the just vengeance of heaven continue to be poured out and visited upon this nation for its abuses and cruelty to the Indian. Come August, the government was late with its $80,000 annuity payment. The agency traders responsible for distributing food would only take cash and refused to release the food until the payments arrived. On their way home from an unsuccessful hunt, four young Dakota men stole eggs from a white settlement. The argument with the hen's owner turned deadly, and the Dakotas killed five members of the family. Expecting retribution, the men and their chief, Red Middle Voice, went to Chief Shakopee. They all convened at the village of Little Crow, or Taduta to discuss how to proceed. The warriors were intent on battle and thought they had a chance with the U.S. Army engaged in the Civil War. Taduta tried to dissuade them. One of them accused him of cowardice. He told the men, See, the white men are like the locusts. 
when they fly so thick that the whole sky is a snowstorm. You may kill one, two, ten, yes, as many as the leaves in the forest yonder, and their brothers will not miss them. Kill one, two, ten, and ten times ten will come to kill you. Count your fingers all day long, and white men with guns in their hands will come faster than you can count. He went on, Braves, you are little children, you are fools. You will die like the rabbits when the hungry wolves hunt them in the hard moon. Talia Taduta is not a coward. He will die with you. A series of attacks ensued. On August 18th, around 20 Dakota descended on the town of Milford with knives and machetes. They went to the front door of each farmhouse and asked for water. Gaining entry, they killed every inhabitant of the homestead. At one house, they decapitated a nine-year-old girl. Of the 53 victims of the Milford attack, 20 were children. The Dakota warriors attacked local agencies and the settlement of New Ulm. The warriors went from town to town, killing 250 within three days. Many who weren't killed were taken captive. On August 23rd, they, t they burned most of New Ulm to the ground, sending over a thousand fleeing by wagon and on foot. Forty-six officers from Fort Ridgely were ambushed as they tried to defend the settlers. Thirteen returned alive. Charles C. Nelson's parents had immigrated from Sweden, and he was seven years old during the uprising. Years later, he recorded his recollections for the Minnesota Historical Society. The soldiers returned to Henderson soon after completing their search, while father left them to walk to St. Peter, arriving there on Sunday evening. He went to the Stone Refugee Building to ask about his family. He was overjoyed to find my brother and me and some of his neighbors, but there was no trace of mother. The next morning, Monday, father and some other men formed a party to search for her and for others that were missing. About a mile north of the church, they noticed someone coming out of the prairie, and coming closer, they found it was Mother. She had been hiding in the slough from Saturday afternoon and was nearly worn out from hunger, exhaustion, exposure, and fright. They commandeered a lumber wagon to bring her to St. Peter. She was so exhausted. Thus, our entire family was spared from death. Most Dakota actually opposed the fighting. Some chiefs, including Red Iron and Standing Buffalo, even threatened to fire on Tayo Tatuta's men if they entered their territory. One survivor wrote to his sister, quote, I saw this afternoon the Indian chief, other day, a friendly Sioux, who helped 62 persons to escape from the upper agency, and by so doing saved their lives, end quote. Another recalled that a Dakota discovered her and her siblings hiding, but he signaled to them to be quiet and left them unharmed. The Dakota offensive continued until September 23rd, when U.S. forces were finally able to overwhelm them at the Battle of Wood Lake. Between 400 and 600 whites, mostly unarmed, had been killed. Led by General John Pope, who had just been defeated at the Second Battle of Bull Run, the army rounded up 2,000 Dakota. Some had fled to North Dakota, and over 300 warriors were sentenced to death. President Abraham Lincoln commuted most of the sentences, 
but 38 Dakota men were hanged on December 26, 1862. It was the largest mass execution in U.S. history. Further west, in what's now Idaho, the Shoshone had a similar experience to other Native peoples. Grass cover and game had been destroyed by the influx of white settlers. Mormons began settling in the Cache Valley in the 1850s, pushing northwestern Shoshone onto less fertile land. White Americans crossed Shoshone land in even greater numbers when gold was discovered in Montana in 1862. Some white travelers killed Indians without provocation. In retaliation, leaders like Chief Pocatello and Chief Bear Hunter attacked emigrant trains. Settlers asked the U.S. Army for help, and Colonel Patrick Edward Connor responded with the 3rd California Volunteer Infantry Regiment. In the early morning hours of January 29, 1863, about 450 Shoshone men, women, and children were camped on the Bear River. They were expecting an attack and prepared by digging into the banks of the river. They successfully defended their village for a time, but they eventually ran out of ammunition and were surrounded by Connor and his regiment. In a four-hour assault, the Army killed 350 people in the largest Indian massacre in U.S. history. After that, white settlers moved into traditional northwestern Shoshone lands without opposition. A year and a half later, in the summer of 1864, a white family was killed near Denver. The crime was blamed on raiding Indians. About a thousand Arapaho and Cheyenne were living together on a reservation along Sand Creek, less than 200 miles from Denver. Territorial Governor John Evans urged white residents to, quote, kill and destroy, end quote, hostile Indians, and told so-called friendly Indians to seek out, quote, places of safety, end quote. Seeking peace, Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle spoke with U.S. authorities, including a fort commander who told them to stay at Sand Creek until he received more orders. Earlier that year, John Shivington had led Union troops to victory in Glorieta Pass in New Mexico. Shivington had been a Methodist pastor and vocal abolitionist. The New Mexico victory made Shivington a colonel. Governor Evans raised the 3rd Colorado Cavalry to chastise all Indians in the region for the Denver family's murder. Colonel Shivington led the regiment. For several weeks, they saw no action, denying Shivington another military glory that he hoped would pro further propel his career. They would be mocked as the Bloodless Third. In November, days before the end of the unit's 100-day enlistment, Shivington led 675 of his men to Sand Creek. Here is how he described the events that followed in a letter to Major General Samuel Ryan Curtis. Quote, the Indians, numbering from 900 to 1,000, though taken by surprise, speedily rallied and formed a line of battle across the creek, about three-fourths of a mile above the village, stubbornly contesting every inch of ground, end quote. Shivington and his troops were extolled, displaying the scalps they'd collected. But Lieutenant Joseph Kramer was a witness to the events and wrote the following to his former commanding officer, Major Ned Wincoop. Quote, Black Kettle said, when he saw us coming, that he was glad, for it was Major Wincoop coming to make peace. Left hand stood, with his hands folded across his breast, 
until he was shot, saying, quote, Soldiers no hurt me, soldiers my friends. End quote. Kramer's account was confirmed by a letter that Captain Silas S. Sewell wrote to a sympathetic major. It's terrible. It's not the most disturbing thing I've read in my study of American history, but it probably is the most disturbing thing that I've read on the show. So, you may want to skip ahead 90 seconds if you think you would find graphic violence upsetting. It reads in part, The massacre lasted six or eight hours, and a good many Indians escaped. I tell you, Ned, it was hard to see little children on their knees have their brains beat out by men professing to be civilized. One squaw was wounded, and a fellow took a hatchet to finish her. She held her arms up to defend her, and he cut one arm off and held the other with one hand and dashed the hatchet through her brain. One squaw with her two children were on their knees begging for their lives of a dozen soldiers within ten feet of all of them firing when one succeeded in hitting the squaw in the thigh when she took a knife and cut the throats of both children and then killed herself. One old squaw hung herself in the lodge There was not enough room for her to hang, and she held up her knees and choked herself to death. Some tried to escape on the prairie, but most of them were run down by horsemen. I saw two Indians hold one of another's hands, chased until they were exhausted, when they kneeled down and clasped each other around the neck and were both shot together. They were all scalped and as high as half a dozen taken from one head. They were all horribly mutilated. One woman was cut open and a child taken out of her and scalped. It gets worse, and if you're willing and able, you can read the entire letter, which is linked in the show notes. At the time of this letter, Captain Sewell believed that George Bent had been killed. Bent, as I mentioned before, was a Civil War veteran. He was wounded at Sand Creek but survived, writing... That was the worst night I ever went through. There we were on that bleak, frozen plain, without any shelter whatever, and not a stick of wood to build a fire with. Most of us were wounded and half-naked. Even those who had time to dress when the attack came had lost their buffalo robes and blankets during the fight. The men and women who were not wounded worked all through the night, trying to keep the children and the wounded from freezing to death. They gathered grass by the handful, feeding little fires around which the wounded and the children lay. They stripped off their own blankets and clothes to keep us warm, and some of the wounded who could not be provided with other covering were buried under piles of grass, which their friends gathered, a handful at a time, and heaped over them. That night, will never be forgotten as long as any of us who went through it were alive. It was bitter cold, the wind had had a full sweep over the ground on which we lay, and in spite of everything that was done, no one could keep warm. All through the night the Indians kept hallooing to attract the attention of those who had escaped from the village to the open plain and were wandering about in the dark, lost and freezing. Many who had lost wives, husbands, children or friends, went back down the creek and crept over the battleground among the naked 
and mutilated bodies of the dead. Few were found alive, for the soldiers had done their work thoroughly. But now and then, during that endless night, some man or woman would stagger in among us, carrying some wounded person on their back. Sewell's dispatch ultimately led to congressional and military investigations. A congressional committee ruled that Shivington had deliberately planned and executed a foul and dastardly massacre and surprised and murdered in cold blood Indians who had every reason to believe they were under protection. Since he had already resigned from the military, Shivington escaped court-martial. But soon after Captain Sewell gave his testimony, he was shot dead on a Denver street. His killers were thought to be Shivington Associates. Rather than suppress Indian resistance, the Sand Creek Massacre drove Plains Indians to join together in fighting against white settlers. It was clear that there could be no peace with whites, and their assurances of protection were meaningless. Indian raids killed dozens of settlers, at times grinding transport to a halt. When Ulysses S. Grant took office in 1869, he tried to implement a so-called peace policy. Back in 1853, while stationed in Washington Territory, Grant had written to his wife Julia that Indians, quote, about here are the most harmless people you ever saw. It is really my opinion that the whole race would be harmless and peaceable if they were not put upon by the whites, end quote. In his inaugural speech, he declared that, quote, the proper treatment of the original occupants of this land, the Indian, is one deserving of careful study. I will favor any course towards them which tends to their civilization, Christianization, and ultimate citizenship, end quote. Later that year, he also confessed that, quote, from the foundation of the government to the present, the management of the original inhabitants of this continent, the Indian, has been one of embarrassment and expense, and has been attended with continuous robberies, murders, and wars, end quote. At the helm of the, of the Bureau of Indian Affairs was Grant's friend, Seneca attorney Eli S. Parker. Parker had served Grant as adjutant general during the Civil War. The two men envisioned full citizenship for Indians, including voting rights and constitutional rights, as well as military protection on their reservations. The peace policy also meant that Indians would adopt the American way of life and become farmers, ranchers, or business owners. Assimilation was pursued through policing, courts, a program called Severalty, and through education. In 1878, Congress authorized the establishment of reservation police forces. These officers modeled assimilation by dressing in white uniforms and practicing monogamy. They were given horses and guns and arrested fellow Indians for crimes such as drunkenness, wife-beating, and theft. They were also given responsibility for taking the census and for over overseeing distribution of rations, construction of roads, and irrigation ditches. Indian judges presided over the courts on the condition that their allegiance was to the Bureau of Indian Affairs and not to the tribe. 1887 saw the passage of the Dawes Severalty Act under President Grover Cleveland. The law encouraged Native people to abandon practices such as seasonal migration in favor of farming. 
tribal lands were broken up into individual lots, and those who registered with the federal government and accepted the division were allowed to become U.S. citizens. The lots were 160 acres of farmland or 320 acres of grazing land per family. Recall that the original Homestead Act also awarded 160-acre lots. Some later revisions gave 320 acres. The difference, of course, was that with the Dawes Act, the federal government was giving people land that had been previously theirs, 150 million acres. The government sold the unclaimed land to non-Native American settlers. But the Native people were inexperienced with farming and unable to secure credit to pay for farm equipment and supplies. They often sold or leased their sections or lost them due to non-payment of state and local taxes. They also did not have experience with cash and capitalism. The money they received, sometimes scant, was quickly spent. When land was bequeathed to multiple heirs, the inherited plots were too small to divide among the children and still be usable. Finally, Indian schools were established to teach the children to embrace intense individualism and renounce tribal customs. In March 1819, Congress passed the Civilization Fund Act, which allocated funds for the creation of these schools. Five years later, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was founded to administer school funding. By the 1880s, over 6,000 Indian children were enrolled in 60 reservation schools. Children from nations across the continent and in Puerto Rico would ultimately attend. Some were day schools and some off-reservation boarding schools. The advantage of the boarding schools was that the children were completely removed from their communities and could be fully immersed in U.S. culture without reverting to Native traditions every night. Here are the words of John B. Riley, superintendent of the Indian schools, in 1886. However excellent the school may be, whatever the qualifications of the teacher, or however superior the facilities for instruction, of the few short hours spent in the day school is, to a great extent, offset by the habits, scenes, and surroundings at home if a mere place to eat and live in can be called a home. Only by complete isolation of the Indian child from his savage antecedents can he be satisfactorily educated, and the extra expense attendant thereon is more than compensated by the thoroughness of the work. The New York Times sang the praises of one such school in 1896. Phoenix, Arizona, July 4th. The largest Indian school in the Southwest and the second largest in the Union is that in the Salt River Valley near this place. It is unique in several respects. It is patronized by the Apaches, the Pimas, and the Maricopas, who have until the last two years been the most lawless, intractable, and savage tribes Uncle Sam has had to deal with. It teaches the red-skinned boys and girls, not only from primers and charts, but it has classes in practical farming, lessons in the proper mode of irrigating land, and the most fruitful crops that the Arizona soil will produce. It is situated in the heart of the Indian country, and its teachers go out of their classrooms and shops into the wigwams and wickiup huts of the braves and squaws and teach lessons of thrift and the absurdity of witchcraft and superstition. Its teachers constantly cultivate 
by deeds of charity in times of illness and sympathy, in hours of distress, a feeling of friendship between the obdurate and barbarous old men and women of the tribes in central Arizona, that, so eminent authority as General Nelson A. Miles is quoted, not only attracts pupils to the school, but makes the necessity of military garrisons in Arizona less and less each year. Killing Indian culture, government officials calculated, was cheaper than killing Indians. According to Interior Secretary Carl Schurz, the cost to kill an Indian in warfare was $1 million. The cost of schooling an Indian child for eight years would be only $1,200. In an 1892 speech, Army Captain Richard Henry Pratt advocated for Indian education as a key to their survival. A great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one, and that high sanction of his destruction has been an enormous factor in promoting Indian massacres. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. He adds, When we cease to fetter him to conditions which keep him in bondage, surrounded by retrogressive influences, when we allow him the freedom of association and the developing influences of social contact, then the Indian will quickly demonstrate that he can be truly civilized, and he himself will solve the question of what to do with the Indian. Pratt founded the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania in 1879. Carlisle would, be, would become the flagship Indian boarding school. The first students came from the nations that the military considered the most troublesome, Lakota, Kiowa, and Cheyenne. The Carlisle Indian Project website acknowledges, Government leaders essentially held hostage the children of tribal leaders to try to ensure good behavior by the tribes. The school was presented to the tribes as an opportunity for children to learn English and be better able to protect the tribe's interests in the future. Many parents and tribal leaders initially embraced the opportunity for their children to learn, while others remained skeptical of any efforts by the U.S. government. When white strangers came in 1879 to tell the Lakota people about a school where the children could learn to read and write and to wear white man's clothes, Otakete's father called it mere sweet talk. But father was proud when Otakete, or Manikil, agreed to go. When Manikil grew up, he became standing bear and explained his decision. I could think of no reason why white people wanted Indian boys and girls except to kill them. And not having the remotest idea of what a school was, I thought we were going east to die. But so well had courage and bravery been trained into us that, had, that it had become part of our unconscious thinking and acting. And personal life was nothing when it came to something for the tribe. Even in our play and games, we voluntarily put ourselves in various tests in the effort to grow brave and fearless. For it was most discrediting to be called Kanalwanka or a coward. Accordingly, there were few cowards most Lakota men preferring to die 
in the performance of some act of bravery than to die of old age. Thus, in giving myself up to go east, I was proving to my father that he was honored with a brave son. In my decision to go, I gave up many things dear to the heart of a little Indian boy, and one of the things over which my child mind grieved was the thought of saying goodbye to my pony. I rode him as far as I could on the journey, which was to the Missouri River, where we took the boat. There we parted from our parents, and it was a heartbreaking scene, women and children weeping. Some of the children changed their minds and were unable to go on the boat. But for many who did go, it was the final parting. Convinced that the white school was, quote, under a sky of rosy apples, end quote, Zitkala Shah, whose name means Redbird, begged her Dakota mother to let her go. An aunt interve intervened on Zitkala Shah's behalf. Though she does not understand what it all means, is anxious to go. She will need an education when she is grown, for then there will be fewer real Dakotas and many more pale faces. This tearing her away so young from her mother is necessary, if I would have her an educated woman. The pale faces, who owe us a large debt for stolen lands, have begun to pay a tardy justice in offering some education to our children. But I know my daughter must suffer keenly in this experiment. For her sake, I dread to tell you my reply to the missionaries. Go, tell them they may take my little daughter, and that the Great Spirit shall not fail to reward them according to their hearts. Hinuk Mahiwi Kalinaka, whose Winnebago name means fleecy cloud floating in place, recalled being tricked into boarding school. A white man came to the day school on her Nebraska reservation and asked if she and other students would like to ride on a train. They said they would, and three days later, Fleecy Cloud floating in place and five other children were in Haskell, Virginia. Without their parents' knowledge, they had been taken to the Hampton Institute. Hampton is a historically black college chartered in 1870, and it started accepting Native American students in 1878. Fleecy Cloud floating in place, who also went by Angel Decora, did not see her mother for three years. She never again saw her father, who died in her absence. Many students were kept at their respective boarding schools for years, despite theirs and their parents' desperate pleas to let them go home for a break. In Arizona, federal troops rounded up 82 Yokoyama children and loaded them in wagons bound for Keems Canyon, 300 miles away. Once at school, one of the first changes was their name. From the list on the wall, Otakite randomly chose the symbols that spelled out Luther. Then they would have their hair cut. Zidkala Shah was dragged, kicking and scratching, from her hiding place when it was time to cut her long hair at the Indiana Manual Labor Institute in Wabash, Indiana. She writes, I cried aloud, shaking my head all the while, until I felt the cold blade of scissors against my neck and heard them gnaw off one of my thick braids. Then I lost my spirit. Since the day I was taken from my mother, I had suffered some extreme indignities. People stared at me. I had been tossed about in the air like a wooden puppet. 
and now my long hair was shingled like a coward's. In my anguish, I moaned for my mother, but no one came to comfort me. Not a soul reasoned quietly with me, as my own mother used to do. For now, I was only one of many little animals, driven by a herder. In Dakota culture, shingled hair was the shame borne by unskilled warriors who'd been captured by their enemies. Pratt was eager to show the American public how successfully the Carlisle School was civilizing the savage children. Photographer J.N. Choate documented the children's transformation into cropped hair, uniform-wearing students. The photographs were enhanced to make the subject's skin whiter. The most exemplary students were literally put on display in the community. Ota Kite recalls pricing jewelry at a Wanamaker's store in Philadelphia. Quote, so every day I was locked inside this little glass house, opening the trunks, taking out the jewels, and putting price tags on them. How the white folks did crowd around to watch me. They were greatly surprised that John Wanamaker could trust an Indian boy with such valuables. End quote. Pauline Gacy Koyawema had run away from her Hopi village in Arizona to go to the Sherman Institute in Riverside, California. Her mother refused to sign the paperwork, but Pauline Gacy longed for the, quote, good things of the white way of living and the abundant supplies of food, clothing, and opportunities to travel, end quote, that white people had. But after the initial excitement of sleeping in a mattress bed for the first time, she cried every night in bed for weeks. Pauline Gacy, Zitkala Shah, and the other children quickly learned that the schools were not places of abundance and red apple skies. But countless students experienced physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. The government's own report decried the schools in 1926, saying, In nearly every boarding school, one will find children of 10, 11, and 12 spending four hours a day in more or less heavy industrial work, dairy, kitchen work, laundry, shop. The work is bad for children of this age, especially children not physically well-nourished. Most of it is in no sense educational, since the operations are large-scale and bear little relation to either home or industrial life outside. And it is admittedly unsatisfactory, even from the point of view of getting the work done. At present, the half-day plan is felt to be necessary, not because it can be defended on health or educational grounds, for it cannot, but because the small amount of money allowed for food and clothes makes it necessary to use child labor. The study was led by Dr. Lewis Merriam and also described the food at the schools as, quote, deficient in quantity, quality, and variety, end quote. It concluded that at the worst schools, quote, the situation is serious in the extreme, end quote. Running away was so common that schools offered the surrounding neighborhoods rewards for capturing and returning students. In Oklahoma, the Chiloco Indian School paid the po local police a bounty of $1.50 to $5 per runaway. Up to 20 students per month ran away from the Phoenix Indian School, which housed over 700 students. If and when they did return to the reservation, home was no longer home. Sun Elk was the first child from the Taos Pueblo 
in New Mexico to attend the Carlisle Indian School. From 1883 to 1890, he was taught to despise his heritage. He recalls, They told us that Indian ways were bad. They said we must get civilized. I re remember that word, too. It means be like the white man. I'm willing to be like the white man, but I did not believe the Indian ways were wrong. But they kept teaching us for seven years, and the books told how bad the Indians had been to the white men, burning their towns and killing their women and children. But I had seen white men do that to Indians. We all wore white man's clothes and ate white man's food and went to white man's churches and spoke white man's talk. And so, after a while, we also began to say Indians were bad. We laughed at our own people and their blankets and cooking pots and sacred societies and dances. Lone Wolf of the Blackfoot Indians recalls, we were told to never talk Indian, and if we were caught, we got a strapping with a leather belt. I remember one evening when we were all lined up in a room, and one of the boys said something in Indian to another boy. The man in charge of us pounced on the boy, caught him by the shirt, and threw him across the room. Later, we found out that his collarbone was broken. The boy's father, an old warrior, came to the school. He told the instructor that, among his people, children were never punished by striking them. That was no way to teach children. Kind words and good examples were much better. Then he added, quote, Had I been there when that fellow hit my son, I would have killed him. End quote. Before the instructor could stop the old warrior, he took his boy and left. The family then beat it to Canada and never came back. Though not the stated intention, the schools did actually kill Indians. Diseases like tuberculosis, whooping cough, and measles spread rapidly within the close confines of the schools. In 1915, three in ten boarding school students had trachoma, a contagious eye infection. Hundreds of students died, often without their parents even knowing that they had been sick. Richard Pratt wrote to one family, quote, Your son died quietly, without suffering, like a man. We have dressed him in his good clothes, and tomorrow we will bury him the way the white people do. End quote. I encourage you to check out the Carlisle Indian School Research Project, a podcast that combs through the primary and secondary sources related to Pratt School. The host, Kate Thimer, is a fellow of the Society of American Archivists. She points out that people who attended the school had a wide variety of experiences, and some alumni even reported fond memories of their time at Carlisle. Perhaps one of the most famous Carlisle alumni is Jim Thorpe. He played football on Carlisle's very successful team, which also produced two future Hall of Famers. Thorpe would go on to play college and professional football, as well as pro baseball and basketball. He earned a gold medal for the pentathlon and decathlon at the 1912 Olympics. Stuff You Missed in History Class has three episodes on Jim Thorpe, and I encourage you to give a listen. The links are in the show notes. Another unintended result of the Indian school experiment is the formation of cross-tribal friendships, including between traditional enemies like Hopi and Navajo. They bonded over their big and small resistances, like cutting up the bloomers that they were forced to wear, and making up secret names for the school matrons, 
in their own native languages. Zitkala Shah, who was also known as Gertrude Simmons, wrote about those friendships in her short stories. She wrote several articles and books, including a collection of retold Indian legends. And she became an activist for Indian voting rights and citizenship. She also played the violin and co-wrote the first opera co-authored by a Native American. Standing Bear authored several books and articles as well. And he advocated for his fellow Native Americans on several issues, including religious freedom and tribal sovereignty. He wrote to President Franklin Roosevelt to lobby for the teaching of Native history and culture in American schools. Several other Native Americans who attended the Indian schools became writers and activists and fought to defend and preserve the cultures that the BIA had set out to erase. Today, they get the last word. The melancholy of those black days has left so long a shadow that it darkens the path of years that have since gone by. These sad memories rise above those of smoothly grinding school days. Perhaps my Indian nature is the moaning wind which stirs them now for their present record. But, however tempestuous this is within me, it comes out as the low voice of a curiously colored seashell, which is only for those ears that are bent with compassion to hear it. Zidkala Shah. The narrative of Charles C. Nelson was shared with permission of the Minnesota Historical Society. Visit usdakotawar.org forward slash stories to hear more first-person accounts. The song Ala Uaba is performed by Roman Arona. The song entitled Prayers is performed by Darren Thompson. The American Epistles theme music is performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Oliveira for their monthly support. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click support on the main menu to visit the American Epistles Patreon page. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.